0: Welcome uh, to the Cato Institute. Uh, My name is Roger Pilon. I'm director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies. And I'm filling in today for Tim Lynch, uh, who um, was scheduled to uh, run this forum, but uh, he had a death in the family, and so I'm substituting for him. Um, This is a a forum that is co-sponsored with the Fund for American Studies, uh, Professor Hasnas, whose book we're here to uh, mark the release of, um, is a a professor through the, uh, not only at Georgetown, but uh, through the uh, programs of the Fund for American Studies, and so they are co-sponsoring that with us, with the Center for Constitutional Studies here at Cato, and with Tim's project on criminal justice. Um, As I just mentioned, we're here today to mark the uh, publication of uh, this new book from Cato, trapped when acting ethically is against the law. Uh, The book is available for sale outside at a discount, and John, I'm sure, will be happy to sign it for you if uh, you'd uh, care to buy it. Um, We at the Center and at Tim's Project on Criminal Justice have had a long-standing interest in uh, the larger subject uh, that is before us today. Uh, namely the um, expanding criminal law, especially the expanding federal criminal law. Uh, The Constitution mentions three criminal uh, um, wrongs. Uh, Today it has been said we have over 3,000 federal crimes and over 300,000 federal statutes or regulations that carry criminal penalties. And so, uh, when we speak of the expanding criminal law, we're not talking about nothing here. Uh, In fact, the Center's first conference, shortly after we were formed in 1989, uh, was on the subject of RICO, the Racketeering Influence and Corrupt Organizations Act. And then a year later, we had another conference on the expanding criminal law uh, that featured um, such luminaries as uh, Robert uh, Mueller, uh, who was then head of the criminal division that is now headed by our commentator, uh, Alice Fisher, today. Uh, featured uh, Nadine Strawson, who was soon to be the president of the um, American Civil Liberties Union, and uh, Professor Bennett Gershman, who is perhaps the leading authority in the country on the issue of prosecutorial abuse. Um, A young Tim Lynch was at that conference, uh, then a um, third-year law student at Marquette. He spoke up at the conference. Uh, We uh, saw him, took notice of him, and hired him. Uh, So if you want to speak up today, who knows what's in your future. (laughs) In any event, um, from our perspective, um, things um, have only gone downhill from that time. uh, The um, um, uh, prosecutorial abuse aside, prosecutors can say, and not without justification, that they're only executing the law that Congress enacts. And perhaps there's no better illustration of that than the excesses excesses, um, that have been um, unfolding in light of the uh, federal organizational and sentencing guidelines that were enacted in 1991 and have been amended since then, which exploit to the fullest the uh, conflicting loyalties that corporate officers face when dealing with allegations of corporate crime. and the recent prosecutions of Arthur Anderson, uh, which the Supreme Court had something to say about, and of Martha Stewart, Uh, bring all of this to the fore, of course. But rather than um, uh, my explaining this any further, why don't we turn to our experts on the subject. Uh, We're going to hear first from the author of uh, Trapped, When Acting Ethically is Against the Law, uh, Professor John Hasnas. And after uh, uh, Professor Hasnas speaks, we will hear uh, from um, uh, Alice Fisher. Um, John Hasnes is um, an associate professor at the McDonough School of Business at uh, Georgetown University. He's also a senior fellow here at the Cato Institute. Uh, at Georgetown, he teaches courses in ethics and law. Uh, he's held previous appointments as an associate professor of law at George Mason University, where he taught courses in criminal law and white-collar crime. He's been a visiting scholar at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics uh, in Washington, D.C., and at the Social Philosophy and Policy Center in Bowling Green, Ohio. Between 1997 and 1999, he served as assistant general counsel for Coke Industries, He holds a J.D. and a Ph.D. in legal philosophy from Duke University. I will uh, introduce uh, Ms. Fisher uh, prior to her commenting on the talk, uh, but let's now give a warm welcome to John Hasnes.
1: I'd like to thank Roger for the introduction, and I really would like to thank Tim Lynch or organizing this book forum, and Ms. Fisher for being willing to come here and, and comment, um, I do think that white-collar crime is a very serious issue, and dishonest business conduct is a very serious social problem. And then again, so is child abuse. And punishing and deterring dishonest business conduct is and should be a high law enforcement priority. I'm sorry. Is that better? Um, punishing and deterring dishonest business conduct should be a high law enforcement priority. So should be deterring and punishing child abuse. So let me ask you to uh, imagine a situation. Assume one day there's a knock at your door and a prosecutor is standing there. The prosecutor comes in and he says the following to you. He says, he believes that your neighbor is guilty of child abuse. And he wants you to spy on your neighbor, to peek in his windows, to monitor his actions. He wants you to do everything in your power to detect child abuse, including encouraging your neighbor to confide in you under a promise of confidentiality, and then turn all information that you gain in this way over to the prosecutor. He wants you to take no action that would help your neighbor establish his innocence and to make no statement to anyone that's inconsistent with his guilt. And the prosecutor also tells you that if you do not do this, you will be indicted for child abuse, okay? You're an ethical person. What do you do under these circumstances? You've been friendly with your neighbor. You think of him as a nice guy. You have no reason to believe he abuses his children. You have no certainty that he doesn't. Perhaps he does. A criminal indictment for child abuse can ruin your life. It would destroy your reputation. It would lose your job your spouse and your children are depending on you, what would you do? While you're trying to decide, you might think that a law enforcement policy that places innocent and ethical people in this kind of situation is not the best one for a free society. Yet this is precisely the law enforcement policy that the federal government is using with regard to trying to suppress white collar crime. My book, the book Trapped, is a critique of federal law and law enforcement policy. I argue in the book that the federal government is waging a war against white collar crime in a way that not only discourages corporations from meeting their ethical obligations to their employees, but also prevents them from adopting the most effective measures of reducing violations of law by their employees. My book is not a criticism of the United States' attorneys. I'm sure Ms. Fisher may point out, they face an extremely difficult task in enforcing the laws against white-collar crime, and as attorneys, they've got an ethical obligation to zealously represent their clients' interests. It's It's almost unreasonable not to expect them or to expect them not to use the tools, the legal tools that are at their disposal. The book is a criticism not of the individual actors, but of the rules that I think give prosecutors too much power and pressure ethical business people to sacrifice the interests and the rights of their employees in order to protect their firms. So, uh, what rules are these? The first rule, or perhaps the most important rule that produces this effect, is the legal standard for corporate criminal responsibility. I te- you know, in the introduction, Roger pointed out, I taught in a law school and I taught in a business school. In the business, academic community, there is a great deal of discussion about what are the proper situa- proper requirements or the proper conditions under which we can hold businesses or corporations responsible for the actions of their individual members, their individual employees. Uh, personally, I think there shouldn't be corporate criminal responsibility because to me it seems like you're punishing innocent stockholders for the actions of others over whom they exert no control. Now, that personal opinion is actually irrelevant to this talk, and it's not widely shared within the academic community. There are many proposals for when it's proper to hold a corporation as a collective entity responsible for the actions of the individuals. And most of this discussion goes along the following lines. A corporation has some kind of internal culture. There's a climate in the corporation when the climate is one that encourages law breaking then it's fair to hold the corporation liable for the actions of the individuals. On the other hand, people who take that position will also argue that if a corporation can create an ethical climate or one that encourages proper law abiding, rule following behavior, then in that case the corporation not, is not proper to hold the corporation liable for the wrongful actions of individuals. All of this discussion about when it's proper to hold corporations responsible for the actions of their employees is irrelevant to a corporation's criminal liability. The law doesn't care what the corporate climate is. Corporations are criminally responsible for all crimes committed by their employees within the scope of their employment. It makes no difference whether the employee acted contrary to corporate policy, or whether the corporation did everything in its power to prevent the criminal activity. Corporations are vicariously and strictly liable for any criminal action un- performed by the individuals within the scope of their employment. And the implication for this of this is the only way for corporations to obey the criminal law is to prevent their employees from violating the law. Any employee violation is a corporate violation. The only way for a corporation to obey the law is to prevent absolutely its employees from violating the law. Now, all business people know that their internal controls can never be perfect. No business can get, can guarantee that there will be no rogue employee who knowingly violates the law. But even beyond this, there's always the risk that employees will inadvertently violate the law. Um, there are a myriad of criminal offenses that may be committed negligently or innocently. But even those that require intent may be committed without realizing one's violating the law. Um, let me, uh, For example, let me talk about federal fraud statutes. Fraud has always been against the law. Right? Traditional fraud is a misrepresent- misrepresentation of fact that another party relies on and suffers a loss of property. Right, so that's always been against the law. But federal fraud is not that kind of fraud. Federal fraud goes well beyond that kind of action. You commit a federal fraud whenever you participate in a scheme or artifice to defraud someone. Under federal fraud, there's no requirement of a misrepresentation a fact. There's no requirement that anyone rely on your misrepresentation or your non-disclosure, or your half-truth, there's no requirement that anyone suffer any loss. There's no requirement that the loss be a loss of property under the federal statutes. If you cause someone to lose their intangible right to your honest, ser- to honest services, that's a fraud. Um, the Second Circuit, in commenting on this, has pointed out that if an employee should use corporate letterhead In a personal dispute with a landlord, that's a federal fraud because it's depriving the company of the employees' intangible right to honest services. The same court described the reach of the federal fraud statutes as virtually limitless. And over the last couple of decades, the federal government has indicted individuals for actions such as the following Uh, indicted a, a physician who was referring patients to a psychiatric hospital, which was appropriate, but not revealing to the physicians to the patients that the physician had a ref- was getting a referral fee for doing so. That non-disclosure was a fraud. Uh, Indicted a IRS employee for looking at tax returns or tax forms on his computer screen that he wasn't authorized to look at, even though he didn't do anything with it. That's a federal fraud. It indicted a housing developer for claiming that the houses that the developer created were good investments, when, as a matter of fact, they were only equally good investments with all the other houses in the <coughs> relevant market. The best example may be Martha Stewart. She was indicted for securities fraud. Right. What was her securities fraud? Well, she went on television and publicly said that she was innocent of engaging in trading on non-public information. <laughs> and the government indicted her because that false <coughs> Government's opinion. That was a false statement. And then that, that false statement was designed to prop up the stock price of her company. So that's securities fraud. Now, the point of this is not to argue about the indictments, but to show that it's certainly possible to commit what, the, what is a federal fraud without an awareness that you're violating the law. I don't think Martha Stewart know, knew going on television and declaring her innocence would result in an indictment for fraud. It's pretty clearly possible to violate these statutes without knowing you're violating the law, ignorance of the law is no excuse, employees can thereby overstep the legal bounds without being fully aware of it. So under these circumstances, what can a responsible manager do? All responsible responsible managers can do is try to guard the corporation against the possibility that the actions of one or more of their employees will place the corporation in legal jeopardy. Now, how can a manager try to protect his or her corporation? Well, the answer to that is determined by the Organizational Sentencing Guidelines and by the Department of Justice's Thompson Memorandum. The Organizational Sentencing Guidelines determine the size of a company's fine if it's convicted of a crime. Under the guidelines, there are only two things a firm can do to reduce its potential fine. It can have an, the first is it can have an effective compliance program. And the second is it can cooperate with the government. The Thompson Memorandum contains the Department of Justice's policy concerning whether to indict a corporation in the first place. And the Thompson Memorandum incorporates most of the features that are in the guidelines. So under the Thompson Memorandum, to avoid indictment, a corporation should have an effective compliance program and should cooperate with the government what are these two requirements? What is required to have an effective compliance program? To have an effective compliance program, a corporation must engage in I'll use quotes monitoring and auditing reason, to use monitoring and auditing, reasonably designed to detect criminal conduct by its employees, and also, it must have a system that provides adequate discipline of individuals responsible for an offense. What's cooperation under the guidelines and under the Thompson Memorandum? Well, cooperation consists of a corporation accepting responsibility, self-reporting, and disclosing to the government all pertinent information. Accepting responsibility is first. A corporation must accept responsibility for criminal wrongdoing. Let's think about what that means. Corporations can only act through their employees. For a corporation to accept responsibility for criminal activity, the corporation must be saying that its employees have violated the law. Accepting responsibility requires the corporation to say its employees are guilty. Accepting responsibility produces a presumption of guilt on the part of the employees, not a presumption of innocence. All right. Just to be sure that you don't think I'm exaggerating. Here's a quote from the guidelines with regard to reducing your sentence on the basis of cooperation. Quote, this adjustment is not intended to apply to an organization that puts the government to its burden of proof at trial by denying the essential factual elements of guilt. So if you want to cooperate, you must begin by admitting guilt. Cooperation also requires refusing to support "Quote culpable employees." End quote. Because once you've accepted responsibility as an organization, by definition, your employees are culpable employees, and you must refuse to support them. That means you must fire them if they elect to put on a defense, refuse to advance their attorneys' fees, and refuse to enter into any into any joint defense agreements with them. Again, a quote from the Thompson memorandum is, quote, a corporation's promise of support to culpable employees and agents, either through the advancing of attorney's fees, through retaining the employees without sanction for their misconduct, or through providing information to the employees about the government's investigation pursuant to a joint defense agreement, may be considered by a prosecutor in weighing the extent and value of a corporation's cooperation. Finally to to cooperate, you must disclose all pertinent information to the government. That means you must turn over the results of any internal investigations. The government can ask for and insist that you waive your, the corporation's attorney-client privilege and work product privileges and turn over the information that the company, the corporation has gained in that way. Essentially, you must turn over all information that's relevant to the crime to the government, whether obtained through promises of confidentiality or not. And if you want to sum all of this up, The only way a corporation can protect itself against legal liability is to enlist as a deputy prosecutor. Given that situation, that's the state of the law. Those, Those are the rules that set up the situation as it exists. What kind of ethical problems does this create for not a criminal business person, but a manager or an ethical business person who wants to run his or her business in a responsible manner? Let me mention a few. Let me start by talking about privacy. Do employees have any right to privacy in the workplace? The answer to that may be maybe not. They certainly have limited right to privacy if they have any. Uh, Employees may be monitored to ensure that they're capable of performing their job. They may be monitored to ensure that they, in fact, are performing it well. They may be monitored in many ways. Yet many people are going to argue, many ethicists will argue that this doesn't give employers carte blanche to investigate non-job related aspects of employees' lives. And it certainly creates an oppressive working environment for employees to know that they're being monitored at all times and everything they do is being scrutinized and they're always being watched. Um, What's required for corporations to have an effective compliance program? Well, effective comp- effective compliance programs require monitoring and auditing to detect and prevent criminal conduct what's criminal conduct in the business world criminal conduct if it's intentional is always disguised to look like non-criminal conduct like legal behavior that's what someone who's trying to commit a fraud fraud would do and if it's inadvertent if it's a violation of law that's through negligence or a public welfare offense or a fraud offense that someone's just not aware that he or she is committing. Then it also looks exactly like ordinary legal behavior. So what can a corporation do to engage in proper monitoring? There's a lot of answers to that. A lot of people are trying to answer that question now. To give you some insight into what the answers are, Deloitte & Touche now markets a service of preparing psychological profiles of a corporation's employees and that means investigating their marital status, whether they're undergoing a divorce, all the stress in their life, their recreational behaviors, anything that could make someone more or less likely to break the rules, to go off the rails. Why? Because this is the kind of information you need in order to protect your company and to know who you should supervise for possible criminal activity. If employees are entitled to any respect for their privacy, The requirement of having an effective compliance program is at odds with that, and the manager must now decide how much risk he or she is willing to incur for the corporation in order to respect the employee's privacy. Second issue would be confidentiality. Uh, To run an ethical business, managers have to know what's going on in the business, in the corporation. Most businesses attempt to acquire information of potential wrongdoing by providing employees confidential means of communication. The two most common ways of doing this is to set up an employee hotline where anybody can report something under a promise of confidentiality or to have corporate counsel do internal investigations and tell people that will speak to him or her that the information is protected by attorney-client privilege. But under the guidelines in the Thompson Memorandum, whenever such communications to corporate counsel or to the corporation suggest that there's possible criminal activity within the firm the corporation must disclose it to the government or risk indictment and increased fines now, this puts the responsible manager in the position between choosing between in the position of choosing between protecting his or her corporation and breaching the corporation's promise of confidentiality you could uh, one might assume that ethical business people can get out of this dilemma. Just don't promise confidentiality in the first place. If you know that you're going to have to reveal this information to the government to protect the corporation, don't make the promise. But that way out won't work either. Failure to provide a confidential mechanism for reporting possible criminal conduct would mean that the company is not, doesn't provide, or doesn't have an effective compliance program. Under Sarbangs-Oxley, under certain circumstances, companies are required to have this confidential mechanism for reporting, and the most effective way of getting the kind of information that the government wants to have is by having confidential reporting mechanisms. If you don't have it, you don't have an effective compliance program, and that gets you in trouble with the guidelines and the Thompson memorandum as well. Businesses could honestly tell employees that anything that they tell, corporate counsel or anything that they report to the employee hotline, will be shared with prosecutors. They could tell the employees that, but then how many employees are going to be willing to come forward with sensitive information about potential criminal violations? Uh, Again, my experience in the business school world, I watch management professors and ethics professors, and if there's one thing they all recommend, it's that businesses should engage in legal and ethical self-assessments. This is what you've got to do to run a corporation in a responsible manner. Have internal investigations. Seek out all of the possible unethical or illegal behavior that's going on and then deal with it. Nip these things in the bud and deal with it in advance. It's widely recommended. The problem is if you engage in one of these self-assessments and the self-assessment suggests any potential criminal wrongdoing within your corporation, it triggers an immediate duty to report to the government. You have to self-report and you have to disclose all of this information. If you have to waive the corporation's attorney-client and work product privilege in order to report, there's no such thing as, well, most jurisdictions don't recognize selective waiver. If you waive the privilege to report to the criminal authorities, you waive the privilege with regard to the world. You waive the privilege with regard to all potential plaintiff's attorneys out there that are waiting to sue your corporation. Self-assessments not only invite criminal prosecutions, but civil lawsuits. And many businesses judge performing these self-assessments to simply be too risky. They're going to see bad news leaked to the plaintiff's attorneys. They don't want to face that situation. Now, to me, this seems like a very counterproductive effect of the current policy. If you're discouraging business from businesses from engaging in this kind of self-assessment process. Another area would be what the uh, organizational behavior theorists like to call organizational justice. Uh, Do businesses have any ethical obligations to their employees? Uh, If they know that their employees have knowingly and intentionally violated the criminal law, maybe they don't have many obligations to the employees. But what if they don't know that? What if a business is in a position like the person who is not sure whether his neighbor really engages in child abuse or not? Do loyal employees who come under suspicion have some claim to fair treatment from the organization? Are they entitled to some minimal presumption of innocence, at least in the sense that they shouldn't be subjected to adverse action in the absence of some adequate evidence of wrongdoing? Many people will say that the answer to that is yes. I'm willing to say the answer to that is yes. But to cooperate under the guidelines and under the Thompson Memorandum, businesses must begin by accepting responsibility. That is, they must begin by declaring their employees guilty. How can managers afford their employees even a modicum of due process while firing them if they choose to mount a defense, refusing to advance their attorney's fees, and becoming part of the government's prosecution team? Recently, KPMG signed a deferred prosecution agreement with the Department of Justice. One of the provisions of that agreement is that KPMG will not, through any of its agent's employees, no member of KPMG will make any statements inconsistent with the guilt of the employees under indictment. That means that every employee of KPMG knows that if he or she, and it's, that's in litigation or otherwise, so every, employer, every employee of KPMG knows that if he or she testifies for the defendants, he or she will lose his or her job because the company cannot retain people who make statements in litigation or otherwise that is inconsistent with the guilt of the employees. These people can't get defense witnesses now or it's much more difficult for them to get defense witnesses. But matters like this, uh, privacy, confidentiality, self-assessment, generating trust, organizational justice, managers are caught in a very difficult situation in trying to meet what they see as their ethical obligations to their employees and also protect their firm as effectively as they can against legal liability. And it doesn't have to be that the Department of Justice is coming after corporations all the time on these matters. Businesses must behave proactively. They want to the lesson of Arthur Anderson is don't get indicted. It wasn't the conviction that destroyed Arthur Anderson, it was the indictment. The company was gone on indictment. You need to avoid indictment. And that means you want to do everything you can to avoid indictment. And that means effective compliance program and cooperation. You must act proactively, you're protecting yourself, but that also means sacrificing the interests of your company's employees. Now I I conclude my book with what surely must sound like a strange suggestion because I conclude by saying that the solution to the problem of white-collar crime may be to curtail rather than to expand efforts to enforce the federal laws against white-collar crime. That may seem strange, but it's misleading unless you understand the context. Remember that fraud has always been against the law. Fraud is against state law. If you wanted to have a federal law against real fraud, that wouldn't offend me either. Fraud is against the law. Misrepresentation that someone relies on and suffers a loss, there's real harm. If you want to prosecute that, that's fine. I'm not recommending reducing that form of prosecution. I'm recommending reducing enforcement of the inchoate and amorphous federal fraud statutes and the federal offenses that can be committed inadvertently or innocently. You know, by prosecuting traditional fraud, completed fraud, you get deterrence against fraudulent activity. Prosecuting completed frauds provides deterrence. Nobody sets out to commit a fraud thinking that he or she's going to fail. You don't try to fail. So if you prosecute completed frauds, you deter completed frauds, you could deter plans and schemes and artifices to defraud, you get the deterrent value. Prosecuting inchoate attempts or plans really adds no deterrent effect. Prosecuting inadvertent or innocent wrongdoing can't be justified on retributivist grounds either. If someone's not morally blameworthy, prosecuting that person isn't justified as a matter of retribution. However, prosecuting people who intentionally engage in plans to defraud knowingly. They are not they haven't complete they haven't committed a completed fraud, but they're involved in a plan to defraud. They know what they're doing. Those people, you can justify prosecuting those people on retributivist grounds. They are manifesting an intent to engage in morally blameworthy activity. So you can justify prosecuting those people. It's just not worth it to try under the present circumstances. The last thing I'll bring up is um, the organizational behavior business theorists have spent decades studying how to reduce rule-breaking by employees. That's what they do. They study the effects of organizational structure on individual employee activity. And there's a great deal of research, and it's very consistent. It shows that, first of all, it is true that if you engage in intense monitoring of employee activity and you have very strict punishment policies, which is what the organizational behavior, behavior theorists call the command and control approach, You can reduce employee law breaking, but not very much. You get a very small effect this way. The same research, which is over the course of several decades, shows that a significantly more effective way of reducing employee violations is to treat the employees, your employees, as though they may be trusted and to rigorously adhere to programs of organizational procedural justice. Apparently, uh, treating your employees in this way aligns the employee's personal values with the corporation's values and it increases the employee's commitment to follow the corporation's rules. That reduces rule breaking and violations. More importantly though, when employees feel that they're being treated fairly by the corporation, they're much more willing to come forward and inform management about others within the firm who are breaking the rules. When you get this kind of alignment between the employee's personal values and the corporation's values. Other people who are breaking the rules seem like an affront to the individuals themselves and they'll report. They don't regard it as somebody else's problem when, they're, when they identify with the corporation. The same research shows that the command and control approach and the procedural justice approach cannot be pursued simultaneously. The monitoring necessary for the command and control approach undermines the level of trust that's required to get employees to buy into the corporate values and fear of undeserved punishment from strict punishment regimes and sanction regimes undermines employees' commitments to the corporate policies in the first place. Present federal law enforcement policy threatens firms who adopt the more effective approach, the procedural justice approach, with indictment and increased penalties if the corporation is convicted. If you respect the privacy of your employees, if you give them a lot of trust, you, you trust trustworthy behavior. If you fail to engage in rigorous monitoring, all of this is evidence of lack of an effective compliance program, legally speaking. If you treat employees, if you extend to employees a presumption of innocence and you adhere rigorously to organizational plans of due process in which you don't punish without certain levels of evidence of wrongdoing, this is failure to cooperate. That's certainly not accepting responsibility. This is failure to cooperate. If the object of law enforcement is to reduce violations of law, then this current policy that's being used, I would say, is a very ineffective one. If, however, the object of law enforcement is to increase the number of guilty pleas and convictions that can be obtained, then the policy may be a very effective one indeed. I'm opposed to the current policy because I believe that the purpose of law enforcement should be the former and not the latter. Okay, let me stop there. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank
0: you very much, John. Uh, now to comment on the issues that Professor Hazness has raised, we're honored to um, be joined today by Alice Fisher, who heads up the criminal division in the U.S. Department of Justice. Uh, in that capacity, she supervises the enforcement of federal criminal laws, and policy for the department. She supervises and uh, the prosecutors in the division on matters ranging from national security, international affairs to corporate fraud and public corruption. Um, Ms. Fisher is a graduate of Vanderbilt University and of the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America. Earlier in her career, she was a partner at uh, Latham & Watkins, uh, uh, litigation associate at Sullivan & Cromwell. And she served as deputy special counsel to the U.S. Senate Special Committee to investigate whitewater development and related matters. Uh, She has worked on both sides of the criminal law uh, uh, issues Uh, from July 2001 to 2003. She served as deputy assistant attorney general of the criminal uh, division. Uh, from 2003 to 2005, she was a partner in the litigation department of Lathan and Watkins, uh, specializing in white collar uh, and internal investigations, including accounting, securities fraud, health care fraud, foreign corrupt practices, and other such issues. Uh, would you please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Ms. Alice Fisher?
2: Thank you, Roger. Okay. Um, And thank you, John. And good afternoon to everyone. Um, I appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about the Department of Justice's efforts to enforce white-collar criminal law. Shareholders have the right to expect honesty and integrity in corporate governance. And the Department believes that preserving the integrity of the financial markets is utmost importance. As a general matter, markets like stability and predictability. They expect honesty, they expect transparency in American companies. Investors put their trust in the markets when they when they buy stock. They don't put their com- their I'm sorry, they don't put their money into companies or markets that they do not trust. And so, preserving the honesty and integrity of markets it goes hand in hand with the enforcement of white-collar crime. Now, nothing made this point more clear than in 2001 and 2002 when we saw all the big corporate fraud scandals. We saw how the markets responded, and they responded quickly (coughs) and negatively. When the frauds were exposed, whole companies disappeared into thin air with the corresponding collapse in the financial markets. I think the market's reaction was a simple and telling reminder that fraud is bad for business. And so at that time, it's no secret that the Department of Justice redoubled its efforts in the corporate fraud area to combat corporate fraud in the wake of these scandals, as reflected in the Corporate Fraud Task Force that was set up in 2002. Since its inception, in fact, the Corporate Fraud Task Force has obtained over 900 convictions, including many of CEOs, CFOs, and other officers of corporations. But let me be clear. The purpose of these prosecutions was not to weaken American business, but rather to strengthen it. And I would like to think that our efforts in this in prosecuting these cases have in some measure restored investors' confidence in the market. The vigorous importance, the vigorous enforcement of white-collar criminal law is important to shareholders of the corporation and to the corporation, other corporations who may be competitors, who need to be able to rely on a level playing field. Indeed, in many ways, I think the Department's efforts in this regard are aligned with business and businesses' efforts. So I think to step back, um, following the discussion that we just had, it's important to understand the goals of white-collar criminal enforcement And when we're reviewing the development. I think there's some criticism about white-collar crime as, as though it was too broad, that the laws that Congress enacted were too broad or that the courts, in acknowledging and sanctioning corporate criminal liability of the entity itself, were somehow acting inappropriately, or the fact that the sentencing guidelines that apply to organizations after a conviction somehow inappropriately incentivize corporations to act unethically or inappropriately. But I think it's important to step back and think that the development of the law in this area area, and the development of policy in this area has its underpinning to ensure honesty and integrity in business by prosecuting those who violate the law and punishing those who violate the law. Now first, the laws of federal prosecutors seek to enforce reflect the collective belief in the value of open, honest, and transparent markets, as I said. And as such, the enforcement of those laws align with the interests of business people. The efficiency of the markets, again, depend on business people playing by the rules and the punishment of those who fail to do so. But I reject the implication that somehow white-collar crime is, is a victimless crime or, or uh, crimes that do not directly harm people. Shareholders are clearly victims of these crimes. Pension holders who, lo- who lose their life savings when corporate managers engage in fraud and the company just disappears, they're victims of these crimes. The systems themselves and the reliability of our systems themselves, that they-, they are harmed by white-collar crime. Competitors, again, in business who play by the rules are harmed by others who don't, particularly when they're not going to be punished or penalized. So I think that these, these crimes are important to enforce, and the development of law and policy in this area is an important uh, backdrop as to how the enforcement policy of the department is positioned today. So I want to step back and, and also address the criticisms about the manner in which federal prosecutors seek to enforce the law in this area. Um, and the criticism that that this somehow um, inappropriately impinges on the ethical obligations that a corporation has to its individual employees. Again, I think that the criticisms that center on this fail to recognize the context in which these decisions are made and fails to recognize that in many ways the government's efforts to enforce white-collar crime are aligned, with the interests of the business. And so there is a balancing that's going on, but it's also a balance that the the corporation has a choice to make and uh, they relate to business judgments that corporations make every day in balancing what's good for the business versus uh, the, the rights and obligations of one particular individual or one particular employee. Now, the criticism that we've um, heard a lot about and I think a lot of the focus is on relates to the so-called Thompson memorandum and relates to the cooperation factor in that Thompson memorandum or the cooperation that's outlined in the sentencing guidelines, which apply after a corporation is convicted. So I think it's important to step back and describe exactly what we're talking about here because it's my belief that the fact that these incentives allow for a corporation to have credit or to gain credit with the government or with the sentencing guidelines is is completely appropriate. It's always a corporation's choice, and it's always a balance of how the incentives work. But at the end of the day, if you look at them in context, again, I think the incentives are appropriate. So... The Thompson Memorandum. What is it? It's a, a memorandum that was set forth by the former Deputy Attorney General Larry Thompson, and um, actually was a follow-on to a memorandum set forth by the former Deputy Attorney General um, Eric Holder, and it was called Eric, uh, the Holder Memorandum at the time. What it does, it it uh, it steps back and says, "Okay, we know." That corporations can be liable for the criminal acts of its employees. But we as a department don't think that it's necessarily in the best interest to prosecute every corporation every time one of its employees commits a crime. So I think. This memo sh- must be viewed in that context, that it's, it's about discretion and when not to prosecute a corporation and when a corporation um, can get credit for doing particular things and convince the government that it's not appropriate to indict. Now the Thompson Memorandum lists many factors that a prosecutor should consider uh, when deciding whether, even if it could indict the corporation, it should not. Um, and those factors, there are nine factors, and they, they cover things like what is the pervasiveness of the conduct? What is the culture at the top of the corporation in trying to prevent criminal conduct at the company? Do, does the corporation have a compliance plan, something that we've talked about a little bit this morning, but that I'm going to uh, go into in a little bit. Does the corporation, um, Will the corporation suffer collateral consequences if it's indicted, and what are those collateral consequences? Is there been any other methods or a culture from the top top managers in trying to prevent and deter conduct? And as well as cooperation, which is also one of the nine factors that prosecutors are told you should look at when you're deciding whether the indictment of a corporation is appropriate in a particular context. And the sentencing guidelines, again, talks about cooperation as well, and this has been getting a lot of attention. Now, the the cooperation cooperation factor in the Thompson Memorandum, in and of itself, lists several several things to consider um, when a prosecutor is evaluating whether that corporation has cooperated, and it's things like production of documents to the to the government, and it also includes waiver of the attorney-client privilege in appropriate um, circumstances, but it goes on and includes other ways that a corporation can cooperate. So the waiver of attorney-client privilege is one factor that you look at within the cooperation factor, which in and of itself is one factor of the nine factors that a prosecutor is going to review in determining whether to indict a corporation. But to be clear, Refusal to waive a privilege can in no way increase the criminal liability. It's not a crime, and it does not alter the underlying crime that the government is investigating. And the department takes this issue very seriously, and it's been debated at length, and we have lots of meetings and considerations about waiver of the attorney-client privilege. And, in fact, there's been a new memorandum issued at the department about uh, prosecutors and when they can seek waiver of the attorney-client privilege in this context. Prosecutors now have to go to a supervisor. No assistant U.S. attorney can, on its own, now request a corporation to waive attorney-client privilege in the context of discussions about whether the corporation is going to be waived. So, so we do take it seriously. We are looking at this issue and we continue to debate it. But now. Um, Only only a supervisor in a U.S. attorney's office can can allow that to go forward. Now, the company can choose on its own at any time that it's in the best interest of the company to waive the attorney-client privilege, and many companies make that choice when they're doing their own business business judgment and their own balance about what puts them in the best light of the government and also what is in their best interest to move forward and get out of the situation. But uh, I think that it... One way to, to think about this is if you step back and evaluate it and, again, think about it as a level playing field because cooperation is, again, one factor in determining whether a corporation is going to get indicted. So if, say you have two companies. Both of the companies have CEOs that have engaged in wide, widespread securities fraud. Both of them have the same facts. Both of them have the same compliance program, and for all sense and purposes, um, they both uh, have all the factors that are the same. Except one company decides I want to get past this problem and I want to do an internal investigation and I want to tell the government what we found. I want to voluntarily, dis- voluntarily disclose it to the government and waive attorney-client privilege. And the other company decides not to do that. Should they get treated the same? Should they be evaluated in the same way when the government is trying to determine whether to indict the company? Or, or better yet, is it inappropriate for the government to take into consideration and give credit to the company that decides they want to push that information over to the government immediately. So I think it's, it, it, it is important to view this discussion and the debate in that context. Now, I think second, a business which makes the choice to cooperate with the government into um, possible criminal activity is not necessarily uh, disregarding privacy rights or ethical obligations to its employees, I think, again, they're making a balance and a business judgment that balances that right of confidentiality against what they need uh, for the corporation's perspective. And this comes into play as well with what we talked about with the compliance plan. Now, the compliance plans are things that a corporation can put into effect to deter wrongdoing, to make sure that they're detecting wrongdoing, to train their employees on how to comply with the law, etc. And this is something, again, that is one factor in in the Thompson Memorandum or one factor that the government looks at in deciding whether to indict a corporation. Here, again, businesses are aligned with the government in these interests. A corporation has a strong interest in ensuring legal conduct, at, it, at it, ensuring that legal conduct is taking place at its corporation and not illegal conduct. A manager needs to know what's going on within the corporation and therefore self-policing is an integral part of effective management. And a company again has obligations to its shareholders to make sure that it's detecting illegal conduct. So I think the fact that Uh, compliance plan, and whether the corporation has taken steps to root out and detect fraud within its company, the fact that that factor is something that the government looks at when it's deciding whether that company is a company that indeed should be indicted is, is something that is aligned with the business interest to make sure that they know what's going on within the company and to make sure that illegal conduct is not happening. So rather than disrupting the corporate structure, the interests of the corporation are completely aligned with the government's interest in providing these incentives with regard to compliance plans and self-policing. So let me just close by saying I appreciate the debate and the discussion, and in fact since I've been on both sides of this issue, I, um, I, I enjoy it. But I think it's important that that uh, these things are considered in context. The Department of Justice has a role and an obligation and a responsibility to enforce white-collar laws on the books. The public demands it. I think Congress demands it. And we must do that to continue to ensure that there's honesty and integrity in our markets rather than turn back and, and accept what's happened in 2001 and 2002 with all the fraudulent scandals. Thank you,
0: Thank you, Ms. Fisher. Now, before we uh, open the uh, floor up to questions from the audience, uh, John Hasnes is going to respond very briefly, and uh, then we will um, have our Q&A from the audience and followed by lunch upstairs. John?
1: Thanks. I don't want to take time away from questions and answers, which are probably more interesting. I'll just make a couple of very short comments. One is I don't find that much to disagree with in Ms. Fisher's remarks. The first part of her remarks gave a very good account my opinion, as to why prosecuting fraud can have a good effect on markets. It was a good argument for prosecuting fraud, traditional fraud, real fraud. I didn't think it was an argument for prosecuting many of the inchoate and amorphous offenses that constitute fraud, and I don't think it was a good argument for prosecuting crimes of negligence or crimes that can be committed with no intentionality. Again, I I do think that if the department's going to make decisions on indictment and with regard to matters of punishment, all of the things that are in the Thompson Memorandum are fair to consider and and probably should be considered. you, You want a company to have a compliance program, but a compliance program, not a compliance program that's tempered with some sense of fairness. There's nothing wrong with the structure itself, it's the operationalization of it. And if you look at the features that constitute compliance programs and constitute cooperation, it places great pressure on corporations to sacrifice their employees to the prosecutors in order to protect themselves. It's true that it's a business judgment that has to be made as to what you should do to protect the corporation and what you owe to your employees. I think a good prosecutorial system would be one in which you encourage businesses to do things that tend to reduce criminal activity in a way that's fair to the employees. I don't think that that's what we have now. I think that what we have now is pressure to become a deputy prosecutor and sacrifice the employee's interest. So that's probably the difference of opinion we have. Did you want to respond?
0: No. Okay. All right. It's time now for you to uh, join in the discussion. Would you please wait until the microphone reaches you and please identify yourself and any affiliation you may have Let's start with this gentleman right here on the uh, edge. Well, my name is Lazar
2: I'm a former student of Professor is at George Mason Law School. That's my affiliation. Um, my question to Professor Hasnas is Professor Hasnas spoke about the amorphous nature of uh, white-collar fraud as defined in current federal laws. Would he consider, let's say, uh, the crime of insider trading to be uh, that kind of an amorphous fraud? And um, what other examples of Amorphous fraud can he provide?
1: Um, that's a good question, and because I'm familiar with the questioner, I, I would expect good <clears throat> questions. You spent a semester asking me a lot of good questions. Uh, I'll say this, I'm not a, enough of an expert on insider trading to make an intelligent comment on that. But if I'd be glad to give examples of the kind of things I'm speaking about, you can break them down in many ways. We have many public welfare offenses that are committed with no intentionality, even if it's an innocent action. There are many offenses that can be committed through ordinary negligence. So there it's just inadvertence. And there are many offenses which require intentional action, but your intuitions don't tell you that you're doing something wrong by acting in this way. The fraud offenses are defined so broadly that people can do things which maybe are not on the up-and-up, but you just you wouldn't know that you're violating the law. One other example would be a corporation is guilty of an offense if the sum total of all of the employee's knowledge taken together would constitute an intent for an offense. It's called the Collective Knowledge Doctrine. That's an example where a corporation can be guilty of an offense when no one is acting in a morally blameworthy way, and yet the corporation still has to protect itself against the threat of indictment for this kind of behavior. So there's many, many examples where if you want to enforce strongly the law against intentional, morally blameworthy behavior, I can make little objection. But so much of the federal offenses is not directed against that kind of behavior that I question whether we should be trying to strongly enforce it through the federal law.
0: This uh, young woman, right?
3: Hi, my name is Stephanie Martz. I'm the director of the White Collar Crime Project for the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. And, Ms. Fisher, I have a question for you. Um, I was wondering, uh, I, since our topic is uh, the ethical behavior of business in the current law enforcement climate, I'm concerned about the position that business is often put in as basically doing the government's investigation for it, given the current requirements for in uh, plea agreements that you could point to regarding real-time reporting of problems that the business is having, um, real-time waiver of attorney-client privilege, the position of monitors uh, in a corporation uh, pursuant to a lot of deferred prosecution agreements that we have now. And what I'm concerned about is um, the government's Using the business to get information from individual employees that the government couldn't get itself without negotiating individual immunity agreements or proffers with each individual employee. And to me, this seems like a clear infringement on the employees' Fifth Amendment rights against self-incrimination. Um... Especially in light of the indictments in Computer Associates and most recently the Singleton indictment in the uh, El Paso Natural Gas case, how do you square the fact that these employees give statements pursuant to a government-imposed threat that the corporation makes that these employees either have to talk or get fired with the fact that if they do then talk, they could get indicted for giving allegedly false statements to a private lawyer?
2: I think you raise a, a a good point and I think that's a gr- a great question um, and one that that should be discussed the 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 issue about corporations complying with government settlement agreements in a deferred prosecution agreement, for example, and uh, providing information about what's going on in the company, or the decision that a corporation is going to engage in an internal investigation to find out whether fraud occurred at the company. All of those decisions are decisions for the corporation. The government does not make um, or force corporations to do an internal investigation or do self-policing or um, waive attorney-client privilege or things like that. The the corporation can choose to do so, whether it's in the context of a settlement agreement or it can choose to do so um, because it wants to have good corporate citizenship and comply with its regulators, whether it's the SEC or whomever. So I think that it's important that this is not something that the government is forcing. It's something that businesses are are choosing to do. Now as to whether an employee is talking to a a corporation or lawyers for a corporation and whether that employee then um, provides a statement to the corporation that the the corporation then turns over to the government, which I, I think is um, the issue posed by the Computer Associates case and the Singleton case. Now, I, I assume that the lawyers in those cases told the individual employees when they were taking those statements that the company was in a frame that they could cooperate with the government and could indeed turn those statements over to the government. And um, that would be a waiver that a a normal lawyer would give before it is engaging in internal investigation and, and questioning the employee in that matter. And then it's the employee's choice whether to cooperate with the internal investigation. And it's the company's choice what action, if any, to take against that employee uh, if, if that employee decides not to talk or not to cooperate with the internal investigation. Again, at the end of the day, these are um, decisions that are made every day in the context of internal investigations. And internal investigations, I think, are things that business should, businesses should and can do to make sure that it's um, detecting whatever corporate illegal behavior is going on in the corporation.
1: I'll just briefly say something along on the same question. I think it's, that's entirely correct. No corporation is forced to take any of these actions. No corporation is forced to cooperate. They're just incentivized in the most highly pressured way possible to do this. They're not forced. It's a judgment. But everything is stacked in such a way that you're putting the corporation at risk unless you do this.
0: Well, isn't this a case of conflicting loyalties? Because, of course, corporate management has a loyalty not only to its employees but to its shareholders. And in many of these yes. contexts, the uh, d- d- taking the ethical action vis-à-vis your employee will put the shareholders' assets at risk, uh, as we saw in the Arthur Anderson case.
1: Yeah, I-, I entirely agree. I think the ethical dilemma comes about from that source. Business, people have an obligation to protect the collective entity. They have an obligation to protect the shareholders' investments. That's one of their ethical obligations. They have others to treat their employees in a fair way. And the current law enforcement regime puts those two things in tension. To do one, you can't do the other. It's not forced. It's a decision. But it's, an, it's a poignant and, and almost a uh, gut-wrenching decision to have to do this this is about business people, but imagine being corporate counsel where your job is to go out and get the information and you know that if you get the information from the employees, you'll be turning it over to the government and they may be indicted. And what do you have to tell them? You do, of course, tell them that you're not representing them. You're representing the corporation. But if you're fully honest, you'll get no information. And the ethical position that corporate counsel is in is perhaps even more poignant.
0: Well, do we have examples of running afoul of the um, um, obligations of attorneys to their client under the uh, the legal ethics standards?
1: I I don't think so. I mean, corporate counsel's client is the corporation. They've got to represent the corporation's interest as vigorously as they can. And that means sacrificing interests of those who are not their clients so that the
0: means employees. every employee must have his own attorney which is a full employment for attorneys
1: and also and once if you tell the employee to get his, but if you tell the employee to get his own attorney that means there'll be no communication you won't get the information
2: so I just want to make clear that when I was responding to the question I was not responding to the particular cases that you raised and I don't know what happened in those cases and I don't have those indictments in front of me I was just talking about the issue in general.
0: That cleared up. Okay, Uh, Bill Niskanen.
4: Is there any other body of law in which an organization is liable or potentially liable for a a criminal act by any employee or uh, shareholder or whatever in in the organization, and as a consequence is expected to be part of the DA's team in prosecuting that liability? Is, is this unique to the fairness provisions in uh, the, the fraud provisions in white collar c- crime, or is this or is this something that is being applied in other areas of law?
1: I can't answer that categorically, but generally speaking, in criminal law, there is not vicarious liability. The exception was made because corporations can only be vicariously liable. At, uh, this talk was about law enforcement uh, policy, but. If you were going to ask me for a reform proposal, it wouldn't be about law enforcement policy. It would be a legal reform. One really good way of solving this problem would be to not hold corporations strictly liable for the actions of their employees. A corporation to be liable should be blameworthy. If you can establish that a corporation has a criminal culture or is doing things that encourages criminal activity on the part of the employees, maybe that's a corporation that could be punished. If you show that a corporation is doing everything it can to, to get its employees to behave legally, that, employee, that corporation shouldn't be subject to criminal punishment. If we change the standard of corporate criminal responsibility, many of these problems would go away. But that's not something that the Department of Justice can do anything about. We, that would take legislative reform or different judicial interpretation. Generally speaking, vicarious liability is inconsistent with criminal punishment because criminal law is about punishment, punishment requires blameworthy action, and you're not blameworthy for something someone else does.
0: Well, uh, are we talking here, to follow up on Bill's question, only about profit-making corporations? What about... uh, uh,
1: All organizations.
0: Including uh, non-profits, except for government, which has, of course, sovereign immunity.
1: an interesting. If you wanted to have an interesting thought experiment, you could ask yourself, what would happen if the guidelines and the Tem- Thompson Memorandum criteria were applied to government when things go wrong? Like I don't. Know. Scooter Libby's under indictment, right? He's part of the White House. So is the is the White House therefore, as a corporate entity, guilty of whatever Scooter Libby is guilty of? And if they are, have they cooperated? With the investigation so that they can get a reduction in sentence. Do they have an effective compliance program? I understand they're starting an ethics program now. But if you apply (laughs) the same criteria to the government that we apply to private businesses, um, I think you'd get a great change in government behavior.
0: I gather you didn't want to comment on the liability of the White House. (laughs) 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 All right. um, Next question uh, this gentleman right here, yes. You wait for the microphone. Identify yourself, please.
4: Jim Lyman. I live in Elk Ridge, Maryland. Uh, this is a question for uh, Dr. Hessness. Is there any, uh, have you made any speculations or any ideas what the cost to the economy is for all this type of uh, prosec- uh, prosecutorial uh, effort right now, the DOJ, for, you know, as far as what different companies are doing to either avoid or to. Uh, you know, not to hit a jackpot situation, which seems very uh, easy to do at this point. Uh, and I don't want to monopolize as far as asking another question, but I would say also, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave it at that.
1: I think I think it's a very good question. It's a question I can't answer. I don't know of any studies that have tried to quantify this, I don't know if the dollar cost. It may well be that there are studies that are done. So I can't answer it. I would say, if I if I knew the answer, I still probably wouldn't base my argument against this on the cost. I mean, we could compare the cost of uh, doing things this way with the cost of the kind of things i recommended procedure policies of organizational justice. And even if the ones that I've recommended cost a little more, I'd still say we should go that way because I think... We're always in a tension between effective law enforcement and catching too many innocent people in the net. And our system typically tries to protect the innocent at the sacrifice of some law enforcement efficiency. And I would come down in the same way. So that would be the basis more than cost for me.
2: Well, and I think that there's a a dramatic cost when... um, Companies go belly up because of the fraud that's being conducted at the top of the corporation or shareholders lose trust in our markets or companies are allowed to violate the law and go unpunished. So I think you can't look at that as a cost of what the government's enforcement efforts are.
4: Wouldn't really the free market I mean, other than the basic things of fraud that Dr. Hasnes mentioned, uh, basic types of fraud that have occurred for you know, that we've defined. Wouldn't the free I mean, in the case of Enron and all the and other cases, wouldn't the free market basically have determined I mean, what makes DOJ presume that they can identify these things any more efficiently than uh, basically would happen in, in, in the economy, basic business dealing? I, I you know. Has anybody been saved any Money through through any of the efforts of DOJ, you know, personal stockholders uh, being saved.
2: I- well, I mean, we're we're not talking about saving money. We're talking about enforcing criminal law here. And so, uh, would there would crimes. Go on for for decades undetected if we had no enforcement of white collar criminal law. I think so. Would it cause disruptions like we saw in 2001 and 2002, which caused harms to the shareholders and harms to pension holders, people that lost their life savings? Um, that's real harm and that's real savings. Now whether um, there's some other way to balance that out, I think enforcement of White-collar criminal law is going to be very important to um, our ongoing financial markets and the trust that investors have in the markets.
0: Well, just to follow up uh, very narrowly on this point, what is it that federal prosecution gains over standard state common law prosecution of fraud, uh, which is the traditional remedy, uh, or rather route we have taken to address this problem?
2: Well, I think federal criminal law, I mean, again, there's a responsibility of the federal government to make sure that we preserve the honesty and integrity in our markets. And federal criminal securities laws and accounting laws and fraud laws and other things are going to account for those public companies that affect not just shareholders in one state, but shareholders possibly across the nation. So we can't expect that state prosecutions are always going to completely take care of all of this.
1: I'll I'll follow up on one thing about cost. These are very good arguments for the prosecution of fraud, completed fraud. But if you want to talk about cost, let's talk about Arthur Anderson. Before Arthur Anderson disappeared due to criminal indictment, they had arranged for I believe it's a $760 million settlement with the victims of Enron's fraud as part of a civil, as part of civil litigation. That would provide some restitution to people who were victims. Of course, once they were criminally indicted, that disappeared. And so did the company and all ability to give restitution. Remember that for wrongdoing, you can recover from wrongdoing through the civil liability system. Criminal indictment destroys that aspect of things.
0: Um, This gentleman right here.
5: (coughs) Leonard Oberlander. I uh, want to uh, ask a question about uh, the level below implementation of the laws that are already on the books, and and the ethical uh, trap that uh, is is set there. What is the nature of the source of the legislation that sets the ethical trap, including uh, associations, attorneys' associations' roles in drafting the proposed legislation? Uh, Is there an ethics issue regarding proposing legislation that sets an ethical trap, and does it create a conflict of interest regarding the creation of business for defense and, and prosecutorial attorneys? And also I, I note that conversations between corporate counsels and, bar, uh, and and outside attorneys is subject to a client-attorney relationship, and, and therefore these conversations are not transparent in the legislative process. Is, is there an ethical issue regarding this etiology of, of the ethical trap?
1: I I may be able to respond briefly to something. Whether there's some kind of ethical trap in the legislative process, I think I would answer that no, because part of the book is tracing the development of white-collar criminal law from the beginning of the century till the present, and my opinion is this law is not planned. I mean, it evolves in (coughs) incremental steps in reaction to one thing or another, and there's not really much thought that goes into the way things work together intent. Honest services fraud just sort of grew out of cases, and uh, when the Supreme Court overruled it, the Congress brought it back in reaction. I don't think there was the kind of conscious planning to either create ethical traps or to know that they're existing, that they exist, and to avoid them. I think a lot of the problems that exist today are a result of efforts to extend the law. Traditional criminal law bars fraud. If the federal government is going to get into the this business, it can't just reproduce what's already against the law. The federal law has to extend the reach to some extent. And over the course of a century, it's gone to the point at which federal fraud is any form of dishonest business behavior basically at all. So that the Second Circuit is saying uh, the reach is virtually limitless. But it's a gradual accretion that produces this result. Let's just take one more question. Um,
0: Paul I right here.
6: Yes, thank you. Paul Kamenar with the Washington Legal Foundation. We've been talking about fraud, which is essentially a malum and say type crime, but the public welfare offenses are ones we also see there's a lot of prosecutorial abuse in prosecuting those public welfare offenses like environmental statutes, uh, uh, workplace safety, and so forth. Uh, those are, of course, uh, malum prohibitum, and therefore they can be prosec- addressed either administratively through a fine with the ALJ, Administrative Law Judge, civilly, or criminally, And all too often, we see the Justice Department coming in and using the criminal law to enforce these regulatory offenses where you don't even need, in many cases, mens rea, and their are confusing regulations. And I want to know from Ms. Fisher whether or not she might favor a, uh, a review of these kinds of prosecutions centrally with the Justice Department, as I understand they currently do with respect to, say, criminal tax matters, criminal antitrust matters, criminal civil rights matters, rather than have these U.S. attorneys that may, one, the U.S. attorney may you a wetland violation with a three-year sentence. Another one may laugh that one out of his office because he's, because he's got more serious things to do.
2: Well, I, I first take issue with the fact that it's prosecutorial abuses because I think the prosecutors here are just enforcing the law that Congress has put on the books with regard to the regulatory offenses. And I think th- th- that Americans have made that decision and made that balance on what should be the criminal law, and it's the responsibility of the Justice Department at that point to enforce it. Now, as to whether um, these public health and, and safety offenses that you've named, uh, whether they're environmental crimes or whether there should be some kind of centralized review, that those don't actually come under the criminal division. And so I, I, I don't know whether there's a discussion right now about centralizing those particular regulatory offenses.
1: I, I will say something. that Paul knows that I agree with him on the prosecution of offenses that don't require mens rea. But I also probably wouldn't put this in terms of prosecutorial abuse. Uh, If we need criminal law, the reason why we need criminal law is not because in its absence everyone would behave as a criminal and rapaciously. It's because most people are very honest, law-abiding, ethical people. But a very small percentage of the population would behave in, in venal ways, and we can't tell ahead of time which they are, so we need criminal law to protect us. And that's true at the enforcement level as well. I think that most of the U.S. attorneys are extremely ethical, well-intentioned people who are certain, you know, pursuing something that's designed to protect markets, and they're doing the job to, a good job to the best of their ability. But there's always the risk of those that are going to overreach, or be too ambitious, or engage in something, make mistakes, or not be fully competent. And you can't tell ahead of time which ones those are. So to protect ourselves against that, we need the system to be right. We need the system to be one in which the prosecutors can't put too much or disabled from putting too much pressure on people to behave in ways that we would think are unethical. So it's not that it's a rife problem of prosecutorial abuse. It's we need a prophylactic to protect us against this possibility.
0: All right. right. Um, let's. Uh, you can buy the book outside and have John sign it. Uh, please uh, join me in uh, showing our appreciation for our speakers today.